You may be seated. And please uh, turn your Bibles to Ruth uh, chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, as we continue the sermon series through this short Old Testament book. Uh, Ruth is just to the right of the book of Judges. It's just to the left of First and Second Samuel. So Ruth chapter 3. Um, in Ruth chapter 1, you know, we learned that this true story uh, took place during the days of, of the Judges, which was a time of moral and spiritual decline in Israel's history, a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we also learned there was a famine in the land. And so the family who's at the heart of this story, uh, led by the father Elimelech uh, and his wife Naomi and their two sons, decide they're going to try to flee the famine. They're going to leave Bethlehem and Judah, go outside of the promised land into the pagan land of Moab. And as soon after they get there, Elimelech dies. And the two, the two sons end up marrying Moabite wives. And then the two sons die. So then we have these three widows, mother-in-law Naomi, two daughters-in-law Orpah and Ruth, Soon thereafter, Naomi, the mother-in-law, learns that the famine back in Bethlehem has ended, that God's provided for his people, and so she decides she's going to return home. One of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, decides she's going to stay in Moab. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, decides that she will go with Naomi. And in fact, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, she says some of the most you know, beautiful and well-known and beloved verses in all of the Bible. She says to Naomi, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And then Ruth chapter 1 comes to an end, with Naomi and Ruth making it back to Bethlehem, just in time for the start of the harvest, just in time for the start of the barley harvest, which was then quickly followed by the, the wheat harvest, and, and which is important because in Deuteronomy 24 and Leviticus 19, God in his word makes provision for someone poor like Ruth to glean in the field of an Israelite. So Ruth chapter 2 um, is what we see. We see Ruth doing that, that she goes out and she picks a field and she begins to to, to glean. She walks behind the, the harvesters, the reapers, out in the field, and she, she picks up whatever they miss, whatever they drop, whatever they leave behind. She, she gleans the leftovers. And in God's providence, the field that Ruth chooses belongs to Boaz, who's going to be an important part of the story. He's a relative of Ruth's dead father-in-law, Elimelech. And Boaz takes notice of Ruth, finds out who she is, and because he knows of her story and her kindness and faithfulness to Naomi, he's very kind and very generous to her, right? So much so that he, um, he, he sends her home that evening with 30 to 50 pounds of grain, and he, and he sends her home with leftovers from the meal that he you know, generously provided for her. And so that evening, Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, is shocked both at the amount of grain that Ruth has brought home and the fact that Ruth just happened to glean in Boaz's field because Naomi is aware of Boaz. She knows that he is a close relative of Elimelech, which means there's a chance that Boaz could serve as a goel in Hebrew or kinsman redeemer in English. You may remember that a kinsman redeemer is one who could marry Ruth 
provide for her, provide for Naomi, and then give an heir to carry on the family line. So chapter 2 comes to a close with Naomi essentially telling Ruth, keep going back to Boaz's field over and over and over again, all the way through the barley harvest, all the way through the wheat harvest. We want to see, okay, where this relationship goes. And so we read in Ruth 2 verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So what this means is that somewhere between two and three months passes from the end of Ruth 2 and the beginning of Ruth 3. Okay, and that's important. A lot of, it's a lot of waiting for these women, especially a lot of waiting for Naomi. She's growing impatient because Boaz, he's still not made a move on Ruth, right? They're, they're not dating. They're not courting. Naomi's growing impatient. So keep that in mind as I read Ruth 3. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled, turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, Then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. 
And it's given to us in love and for our good. And so we're going to walk our way through Ruth chapter 3, but the, the, the outline is going to be three scenes. We see three pretty clear scenes. So there's, there's scene one, the plan, the hatching of the plan. Scene two, there's the midnight meeting. And then scene three, there's the next day. So first, the plan. We read in verse one, then, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? that it may be well with you, right? So that, that then is referring to the, the two to three months of barley and wheat harvest and how they're now over, right? That Naomi and Ruth, they've been waiting for Boaz to, to make a move, to do something over those two or three months. And so then we see that Naomi says, my daughter, should I not seek? And in our English translation, it looks like she's asking a question. But in the original Hebrew, she's actually expressing you know, clear certainty that she knows that it's her duty to seek. Okay, so put another way, Naomi's not asking a question as much as she is making a forceful declaration. I will seek rest for you. She's saying, Ruth, I know what needs to happen. Here's what we're going to do. Right, and the rest that Naomi seeks for Ruth is that Ruth would find rest, security, and provision in a new husband. Remember, think back to what Naomi said to her daughters-in-law back in Moab. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 9, she said, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And so here at the beginning of chapter 3, Naomi has a great sense of urgency to help Ruth find a husband. And it's very clear, right? Her sights are set on one man, on Boaz. Because Ruth knows that he is a close relative of Elimelech, that he can be the kinsman redeemer. Right? But as Ruth 3 begins, we don't know if he will. Right? Is he going to do it? You know, if, if he's willing to do it, you know, what, what is he waiting on? Verse 2, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? Now, we've discussed the leveret marriage each of the past few weeks. Deuteronomy 25 says that when a husband dies and leaves a widow without any sons, any heirs to carry on the inheritance in the promised land, then the man's brother or a close relative, in Hebrew a goel, or in our English translation a redeemer or a kinsman redeemer, is able to marry her to be able to provide sons, provide heirs to the dead brother's, in the dead brother's name to preserve the family's inheritance in the promised land. And so Naomi keeps coming back to how Boaz stands in a position to be the kinsman redeemer that Ruth needs, that, that Naomi needs to provide for both of them and to preserve the family line. So Naomi has a plan. And in the second half of verse 2, she unveils the plan. She says, see, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. So to understand the events that are going to unfold in, in Ruth 3, we have to understand the process of the harvest. Okay, so uh, you know, we've already seen last week in Ruth 2 about the reapers out in the fields. They cut down the, the stalks of grain, and they lay them on the ground. They tie them up in bundles. And then they're taken to the threshing floor. And at the threshing floor, there was the threshing. You see? Yes. You guys pick that up, right? The threshing floor is where the threshing happens. Okay. Which is when the grain kernels are separated from the husk. And then the heavy grain was winnowed out into one pile, and the worthless, worthless chaff winnowed out into another pile. Then after all of that, the good grain is taken into the city for storage or to be sold. And so depending upon 
how bountiful the harvest was, the process of threshing and winnowing could take weeks. Not just days, but weeks. And so it was common for the owner of the field to actually stay with the harvest at the threshing floor through the night to guard it, to keep people from, you know, from stealing it, to keep you know, a fire from destroying it. And so this is why Naomi knows that Boaz is going to be working into the night and then sleeping at the threshing floor. So we're, we're about to now learn the rest of Naomi's plan. And, and the rest of Ruth 3 is, is honestly, it's, it's a bit difficult to interpret and to understand. And my guess is that in a room this size, that, that many of us have heard you know, various interpretations of Naomi's intention and her plan for Ruth here in this chapter. And so, I, you know, I want us to look at what the text actually says rather than just rely on various things we've heard that's possibly, you know, misinterpreted or added to what's not here. Okay, so look at verses 3 and 4. Naomi says to Ruth, Wash therefore and anoint yourself, put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, some pastors and scholars will accuse Naomi of being you know, very, very scandalous here, very, very sinful here. They'll say that Naomi, you know, she's clearly waited as long as she can. Now it's time for drastic measures. So she tells Ruth to put on her best perfume and her prettiest dress and go down to the threshing floor to wait until Boaz is drunk, and then she's supposed to seduce him and have sex with him. Now, I agree the text is plain, that Naomi is out of patience. She feels like she's waited as long as she can. Boaz, he's not making a move, and so she is now going to force the issue. And I think we can also say that Naomi's plan is it's unwise. It's reckless. She, she puts Ruth in harm's way, and we'll talk more about that. But, but that's as far as my critique of Naomi goes, because we have the text before us, and I don't want to go beyond what the text says. Okay, so let's look at these verses closely. First, look at verse 3. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. So Naomi's instructions, wash, anoint yourself, put on clothes. I don't think they're meant to be interpreted as, Ruth, I want you to be as sexy as you possibly can be so that you can seduce Boaz. I think wash, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, most likely means that Naomi's telling Ruth, put away the traditional morning clothes, morning garments that you've been wearing and dress more normal so that Boaz knows that the morning period for your husband is now over and that you're available to be pursued. See, but the directive to go down to the threshing floor, it was reckless and dangerous for a couple of reasons. First, we've already seen in Ruth 2, both Boaz and Naomi were concerned about and warned Ruth about the danger of being assaulted by various workers in the field, right? And that was in the middle of the day. Now this is at night. And she has to walk out of the city, off out into the countryside, to the threshing floor at night, where there's bound to be more of these workers around. And so it's certainly reckless, certainly dangerous. She's in harm's way. Second, the Old Testament book of Hosea, in Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, 
tells us that prostitutes would hang out around the threshing floor, which makes Naomi's advice to Ruth not only dangerous and reckless, but also could be interpreted by as scandalous behavior by Ruth. So it's a very, very risky plan. Okay, look at verse 4. Doesn't get any less risky. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Right? Very risky plan because Naomi and Ruth have no way of knowing how Boaz is going to wake up, uh, react to waking up in the middle of the night with a stranger laying at the foot of his bed. Right? I mean, think about how would you respond to that? We got no idea how he's going to do this. But the women have a lot of confidence in what they know of Boaz's character. Remember, right, he is introduced to us as a worthy man. And so Ruth is being asked to put herself in a very vulnerable situation. There's so many different ways this could all go very, very badly. Now, before we move on, it's possible that you're either curious about or you've heard a pastor teach about this phrase, go and uncover his feet. And perhaps you've heard it said that that this phrase is a euphemism for sex. Now, there are times in the Old Testament where it said that someone uncovers another's nakedness. And it's a euphemism for sex. Okay? I mean, if if you really read the Bible clearly, carefully, faithfully, you'll see. I mean, the Bible's not rated G. Okay? It's not rated PG. Okay? It's... There are some scandalous things in the Bible. And we do see this phrase, uncover another's nakedness. But that's not the phrase that Naomi says to Ruth. She says, go and uncover his feet. Now, now, I agree, that sounds odd. Okay, it's an odd plan. It's a risky plan. Okay, what does it mean? Well, theologian John Currid says, this is the only time in the Bible that the clause to uncover his feet appears. It has been suggested that this is perhaps a metaphor for sexual activity. There's no evidence to support such an interpretation, and it simply does not fit the story. Naomi's command should be taken at face value, although it is highly, a highly symbolic act. By coming to the threshing floor and lying at Boaz's feet, Ruth is communicating submission. She is, in effect, saying that she wants to be Boaz's wife. And she awaits his judgment and answer in the matter. So again, this is a reckless and risky plan. But I think the reason, besides her impatience, that Naomi talks Ruth into this plan is because, again, what she knows of Boaz's character and his integrity, that he is a worthy man, that he's not going to to take advantage of Ruth. He's not going to harm her. In fact, even if he decides not to take her as his wife, he's not going to shame her that he's going to do it in a very kind and and private and dignified way. And so we see in Ruth 3, verse 5, she replies to Naomi, all that you say, I will do. And that brings scene one to a close. So Naomi's scheme is reckless, it's risky, so many things that could go wrong, but I don't think that Naomi is coercing Ruth into doing something that is utterly scandalous or immoral. Put another way, Naomi and Ruth are being forward, and a bit aggressive and impatient, taking matters into their own hands. But Ruth 3 is not some scandalous affair, okay? Ruth agrees to the plan, walks forward by faith. Then we have scene 2, the the midnight meeting. So look at verses 6 and 7. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, 
And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. Okay, so now we're going to see if Naomi's plan is going to work. Boaz has been working all day. He has a, a nice meal. Uh, it says his heart was merry. Now, that's not to be interpreted as he was drunk on alcohol. The Hebrew word translated merry means good, happy, satisfied. So Boaz was full, content, satisfied, ready for bed. So he lies down near a heap of grain, and then Ruth softly, quietly uncovers his feet, lies down at his feet. Read in verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And of course he was startled, right? Wouldn't you be if you wake up, you woke up, you know, tomorrow, this, you know, this tonight, you wake up tonight with someone lying, you know, at the foot of your bed. It's going to wake you up. Any, any reasonable question? Verse 9, who are you? Now, I think we, we should take notice of how godly Boaz is, okay, even in that question, because my guess is, is that if tonight you wake up with someone who's laying at a stranger in the foot of your bed, that you're going to say something besides just, hey, who are you? You know, what are you doing here? Rest of verse 9, Ruth responds to Boaz, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And notice that Ruth goes off script here. You know, Naomi gave her the whole plan, but she didn't say, this is what I want you to say to Boaz. See, I think Naomi uh, envisioned Ruth just staying quiet and, and letting Boaz take the lead. Remember, he will tell you what to do. But Ruth speaks. And her words are both humble and a bit forward. They're humble and they're bold. Okay. Is they're humble, I mean, she refers to herself as his servant twice, but they're also bold because Ruth says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. See, simply put, she's making a marriage proposal to Boaz, okay, in the middle of the night while waking him up with her you know, stranger at his feet. And this is very countercultural, very unexpected, okay, and so look at, look at, uh, looking at Ruth 3, verse 9, and this, and this, uh, this line, spread your wings over your servant. Okay, keep that in your mind. And I want you to look at Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. And this is what the Lord says to his people. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You see here in, in Ezekiel 16, God uses the expression of spreading one's garment or literally spreading one's wings over another to metaphorically describe his covenant relationship with his people right, as being like a marriage covenant. So, do you see this? So also, so Ruth is proposing marriage. In addition, Ruth is proposing marriage with using this expression, which is also a way to kind of use some of Boaz's words back on Boaz. You know, do you remember in Ruth 2, whenever Boaz and Ruth first meet, that Boaz, um, you know, he, he gives a bit of a benediction to Ruth. You remember that? It's in, in Ruth 2, verse 12. Part of what Boaz says is, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So now... 
At midnight on the threshing floor, Ruth says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant. So do you see what Ruth is saying? That She's essentially saying, you know, one of the ways that God can provide refuge for me is by providing a goel, a kinsman redeemer. And Boaz, you can be that guy. You can be that kinsman redeemer. You can take me under your wings in marriage. So the question is, will you? you know, will you marry me? And so Ruth lays it all out there. And Boaz, he's a worthy man. But he's not Elimelech's brother. He's under no obligation to do this, to, to marry Ruth. And so we don't know, right? What will he do? What will he say? Right? Will Boaz take advantage of her? Will Boaz rebuke her for pulling such a stunt and, and putting herself in harm's way? But remember, he's a worthy man. So look at verse 10. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And you see this worthy man, Boaz, he's so kind and so gentle with her. All the while being woken up in the middle of the night with this person, you know, laying at the foot of his bed. And he first, he blesses her. May you be blessed by the Lord. And then he interprets her proposal her interest in him as a great kindness. He actually used the word, the Hebrew word hesed. It's a great kindness. It's a great kindness that she has shown him because she's a younger woman, he's an older man. He says she could have gone after a, a younger man or a richer man, but she chose him. So we read in verse 11, and now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. There's a lot here in verse 11. First, just imagine you know, how Ruth must feel whenever she hears these words come out of Boaz's mouth. Right? The plan it, it has worked. Right? And notice that the Boaz, who we know to be a worthy man, now describes Ruth as a worthy woman. And again, I think this is further proof there was no sexual immorality that night at the threshing floor. Right? The plan was risky, reckless, unwise. Ruth was put in harm's way. There was the potential for scandal and certainly allegations of scandal, but these are two godly people. Or as John Curran puts it, here's an upright man dealing with an upright woman. But before we move on from verse 11, think a little bit more about that phrase, Ruth is a worthy woman. Now, we know that in our English Bibles, the book of Ruth immediately follows the book of Judges. Well, we've, we've made mention of that every week of this series. But do you know that in the Hebrew canon, there's a different order of books. And the book of Ruth follows the book of Proverbs. Now, what you think about that, how does the book of Proverbs end? You know, what is the second half, what's the topic covered in the second half of Proverbs 31? Well, there we're given a description of a godly woman, a noble woman, a, a worthy woman. Right? Proverbs 31.10 asks, an excellent wife who can find a noble wife, a worthy wife, who can find? In the very last verse in the book of Proverbs, 31, 31, give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Do you know that's actually the, the same line that Boaz uses in Ruth 3, verse 11. In the Hebrew text, Boaz literally, literally says, all the gates of my people know that you are a worthy woman. And so Ruth is the embodiment of a Proverbs 31 woman, and we're meant to see that. So the plan works. 
Boaz responds to Ruth's marriage proposal with, I will do all that you ask, but, but there is more. Look at verse 12. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. I'm one of Elimelech's close relatives. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Okay, so just as Ruth hears Boaz agree to marry her, he then tells her there's a little bit of a problem or a potential problem, that there's someone else, apparently unknown to Naomi, someone else who's an even closer relative to Elimelech than Boaz. And so if you remember, there's a bit of a, of a pecking order or a, a priority of rank among the various close relatives who could serve as kinsmen redeemers. And Boaz says, there's one man who ranks ahead of him who kind of has first right of refusal. And so uh, Boaz says, I go talk to this man. So look at verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So he says, remain tonight. Again, it's not hinting at sexual immorality. Boaz is a worthy man. He's concerned about Ruth's safety. And he continues to give evidence that he's a worthy and godly man because he assures Ruth that he will go and speak with this other man first thing in the morning. He's going to push that man to make a decision. Either that man is going to marry Ruth and take care of her or Boaz will. Okay, now, scene three, the next day. In verse 14, so she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. So again, right, we know that Hosea chapter 9, verse 1, prostitutes were often at the threshing floor. Boaz wants to guard Ruth's reputation as the worthy woman that she is. Verse 15, and he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. So that, that's an enormous amount of barley, the six measures. We're told that, that it could have been as much as 80 pounds of barley. All right? I mean, it's so much that, that Boaz has to kind of load it onto her back. Okay? And he does that. He loads it onto her back, and then you know, she staggers or waddles or whatever back into the city with all of this barley. I mean, we know she's a, she's a strong woman. And so, but she does that. Verse 16 and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Now, that question is literally the same question that Boaz asked whenever he woke up in the middle of the night. It's literally, who are you? Now, Naomi knows who Ruth is, but, but do you understand why she's asking this question? Okay, you've got to tell me. Tell me the story. There's obviously something different about you. What has changed? You seem so different. And then Ruth gives Naomi the report in verses 16 and 17. Now she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Now, I don't know if you realize how funny verse 17 is, but that's pretty funny. Ruth doesn't say anything to Boaz about Naomi sending her. But Boaz knows that Naomi is behind all of this. He knows that she's the one who's been scheming. She's the one who, who, who pushed Ruth to go do this. And I mean, I'm not saying anything about you guys who are mothers-in-law. I'm just saying that, this, that Boaz knows this. And the gift of the six measures of barley was a pledge from Boaz to Ruth, but also it was a message from Boaz to Naomi. Right? In the message is you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. 
You must not return empty-handed. That's very similar to how Naomi described herself at the end of Ruth chapter 1. Remember whenever she's still very hard-hearted towards the Lord for losing her husband, losing her sons. She's very bitter towards the Lord. And she describes herself that way back to her friends in Bethlehem in Ruth 1.21. She says, I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. And so Boaz's message to Naomi seems to be, Naomi, I know you're behind this. I know you're impatient. I know you put Ruth up to this. You're the one, you're the one who sent her to me. I know you put her, you know, I know that you know you put her in harm's way, but I want you to see that you can trust me. And more, even more than that, I want you to see that you can trust the Lord in these matters. Trust the Lord. It's not up to you to manipulate things and make them happen. Which, by the way, that's always a good reminder for all of us, right? And then the chapter ends with Ruth 3, verse 18. Naomi replies to Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And so here we see, you know, Naomi, who had begun to have her heart softened in Ruth chapter 2, we see her certainly impatient at the beginning of Ruth 3, but here she seems to have understood Boaz's message and is actually agreeing with it. Right? At the beginning of the chapter, Naomi felt the need, sense of urgency. I have to find rest for you, Ruth. Naomi seemed impatient, right? It had been two or three months. There's no movement on the kinsman redeemer husband front. And so Naomi felt that she had to make something happen. However, here at the end of chapter 3 in verse 18, after Boaz's pledge of the six measures of barley and his message to Naomi, now she urges Ruth to be patient and to trust Boaz as she continues to trust the Lord. As theologian Barry Webb puts it, paradoxically, Boaz's restlessness, the man will not rest, is the guarantee that the rest Naomi has sought for Ruth will soon be hers. All she has to do is wait. But yet, that's hard, right? And so let's start there as we think about a couple of things to take away from Ruth chapter 3, that waiting and trusting God is hard, right? It's hard. We know that. All of us know that. You know, even the children in this room know that, right? I mean, I'm sure you're experiencing it now as you think ahead about Christmas. You know, it's hard to wait, you know, I mean, there's one month out of the year whenever my kids actually are excited to check the mail, and it's December, right? There's one month where they're very curious to see, you know, to, to investigate, you know, the Amazon cart and what's been put in there and what's not been, and, you know, and it's hard. It's hard to wait for those presents. And those of us, you know, who are older, you know, th th we know that there are even, there are much more things in life that are hard to wait on. It's hard to wait to see what's going to turn out with people and circumstances and the diagnosis and the various concerns and anxieties and the unknowns of life. Right, Naomi, she's impatient at the beginning of the chapter, and even though she has the right instincts, she has the right motive about Boaz being Ruth's kinsman redeemer. She does anxiously devise her own scheme, and she runs ahead of God. And in the process, she does put Ruth in harm's way. Now, praise God how he so 
often is so gracious to us in our impatience, isn't he? Even whenever we devise our own schemes and we try to manipulate circumstances to try to take matters into our own hands, right? And waiting, it's so often the hardest part. And I know we all know that, especially when we're not just waiting for a day or a week or a month, and most especially when we know there's, there's no timetable given to us for how long we'll have to wait. Now, and of course, I can't know all of your present situations. What I'm going to try to do is just simply ask a few questions that, Lord willing, will, will provide the room uh, for the Holy Spirit to, to move and work in, in your hearts and minds and help apply this. So right now, in what situation has the Lord asked you to wait? And how are you doing at that? Are you waiting well? Are you trusting God to bring answers? Or are you, you know, trying to force the issue and take matters into your own hands? Now, of course, there's, we need to live responsibly and be faithful, and there's certain things that we're called to do that aren't taking matters into our own hands. But, but, but you know if you are or if you are not. And so do you need to confess and repent of any ways that you're trying to run ahead of God rather than faithfully wait on Him and His perfect timing? See, dear friends, you can be assured that God loves you so much that he's going to continue to be faithful to keep bringing various circumstances in your life to teach you to wait on him. That's the good news and the bad news. He's, he's faithful to continue to disciple you into knowing and believing that you really, really, really can trust him. And you must trust him. Now, the, the last thing I want us to see is that yes, in Ruth 3, there's this budding love story between Boaz and Ruth, but, but we're ultimately meant to see in this love story the, the greater love story. The greater love story, the greater love that God has for his people. Love that, that caused him in the Garden of Eden to promise to send a Savior. You know, God's love that orchestrated all the events of redemptive history to bring about that promised Savior. You know, a Savior who, who loved us so much that at the first Christmas, he took on human flesh and dwelt among us. You know, a Savior who loved us so much that he lived and suffered and bled and died on Calvary's cross to pay the full penalty for our sins. Right? The love of God that's described in verses like John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love that's described in, in the verse that we use for our assurance of pardon today, Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love of God for sinners like us. So the question is, you know, do you know this love? Do you, do you want to know it? If you want to know it, Jesus says, come and get it. Come and receive and rest in the grace and the salvation that I've purchased for you. Come and rest. Right, Ruth, Ruth 3 speaks a lot about rest. And one of the best quotes about, about the rest that only God provides through Christ is by St. Augustine. He said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. You know, Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest. In Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. See, friends, do you know the rest that only Jesus gives? Again, do, do you want it? The invitation is there. Come to me all, and all means all. All, no matter what you've done, no matter what you are doing, no matter where you've been. You, you're, you're not a lost cause. He says, come to me all. Okay, well, how do you come? Well, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The way that you come, it's not by trying really hard to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. It's not by trying really hard to clean your life up. It's by coming to Christ in faith and trusting and receiving and resting in the finished work of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for sinners like us. And this table that's before us reminds us of this, of how Christ gave his body and how he shed his blood to give us true rest and peace and salvation and life, all out of love for sinners like us. Amen? Amen. Let's, let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for this story. Lord, and I pray that, Lord, you would use it to challenge us and to convict us in ways where we need to be challenged and convicted, but also, Father, please use it to, to comfort us where we need that as well. I pray that each and every one of us would receive and rest in the finished work of Christ on the behalf of sinners like us. And Lord, these elements that are on this table before us, these are common, ordinary elements that we set apart for this holy sacrament. Lord, please use the Lord's Supper to strengthen and nourish our faith. We may love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love one another as ourselves. Lord, I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.